It's one of the original wineries that it was built back in the late 1800s. We're part of a charitable trust, which one of the organizations of this charitable trust is the Leduc Foundation, which basically what they do is fund programs for cardiovascular and neurovascular research. Yeah, I mean, here at Ellers Estate, we, I don't inoculate with commercial yeast. I'm very gentle with the use of sulfur. All the efforts, all my work basically is focused on being sure that these vineyards that were planted in 1997, they stayed around for at least 30 more years. And we are doing a lot of changes in the winery just to make it economically sustainable and that we can actually produce better wines with respect for the land. Welcome to Mindful Businesses, presented by Sirani, and I'm your host, Vidya Ayer. In our podcast, we bring to you businesses that are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business employs sustainable social, economic, and environmental practices. Today, we have with us Laura Diaz-Munoz, winemaker and GM of Eller's Estate, Sustainable Winemaking. She joins us from Napa Valley, California. Welcome, Laura. Thank you for having me here today. And yeah, excited to talk to your audience about Ellis Estate. With summer fast approaching, a good glass of wine on a wine tour is an activity a lot of wine lovers look forward to. There are wineries across the 50 states in the United States, right? And California wines are especially popular. How large is the wine industry in the U.S.? It's growing exponentially. The states are probably one of the major consumers right now globally. The industry is growing so much that it's actually hard to keep track of the growth. But yeah, consumers drinking more wine. There's more wineries popping from every wine region. Every single wine region is producing better wines. And it doesn't seem that it is stopping this growth. It's hard to measure it right now because every year and every decade is changing. I was surprised that the 50 states, you know, everybody only thinks about California or, you know, some other states like we are here up in Buffalo, New York. They think uh, New York or Michigan, some of those states have some wineries. I was surprised that all 50 states have wineries. Yeah, probably. I mean, there's always been some kind of activity around winemaking in every state and even in other countries that were normally consumers instead of producers. But probably climate change has accelerated a little bit production and the capacity to farm vineyards where we thought that it was not possible before. Yeah, I heard some of the wineries in France have started moving further north Mm -hmm. because it's so hot in the southern parts. Yeah, look at England. England is producing amazing sparkling wines that can rival to champagne. And they are also starting producing steel wines and is growing as well exponentially every year, the growth of vineyards that they are planting there and, and wineries. So it's changing very quickly. The heat itself is not so bad, right? Because you need that heat for the sugar to crystals to form in the grapes. Yes, you need light and you need a certain temperatures for the vines to grow healthy and produce grapes that can ripe properly, that can accumulate the amount of sugars that will make them pleasant to eat and also to produce wine. There's accumulation of different factors that are happening right now that are allowing for this to happen in many different wine regions. And of course, there are different kinds of wines based on the kinds of grapes. Correct, yeah. So the winemaking is different, how wine is made in the United States and how wine is made in Europe 
there is some variation, right? But let's start with the grapes. Is there a difference in the way the grapes are grown in the U.S. versus at the end of the day, there's not much difference. What it happens is that in Europe, there's a lot of regulations and traditions that have created some boundaries and controls about farming practices in specific grapes. And they also, there's a lot of limitations of the amount of, or the kind of varieties that you can actually plant if you can irrigate or not irrigate. This production, the yields that those grapes can produce is very much controlled versus here in California or in U.S., we don't have that control, are not limited by specific regulations. Obviously, there's regulations of what products or to use or not uh, when we are doing applications to uh, farming practices, and there's not much control. And it's very similar, the farming practices all over the world. And I think one of the beauties of, you know, being connected now with through social media, through, you know, internet and education, it has allowed that there's a lot of more knowledge about what other wine regions are doing that are doing right and that can be implemented in, in new wine regions. And I think there's a more education and more sharing of information about how to farm more sustainably and being more productive and, you know, economically sustainable as well. So last year, I had the opportunity to visit winery in Sicily, and this was a tour in which he talked about the great French wine blight, right, which happened in the mid-19th century, where many vineyards in Europe were destroyed. And I was surprised to learn that the grape wine plants that are used are a hybrid or graft of an American variety, right? Yes. So this happened because there was an insect in the soils that was uh, damaging the roots and it was killing plants. And it was a plague that, a pest that, that uh, destroyed vineyards all over Europe. It was attacking Betis vinifera, which is one of the species of Betis or, or grapes that or plants that can produce very good quality wines. And what they noticed is that American species were resistant, some of them more resistant than others. So that's how it all started. It's like, well, if we use the part of the root as that American variety in the roots, and then we grafted the scion of Abitis vinifera to produce good quality grapes, they actually saw that it works. So it's, that is how everything basically started. There's still few countries in the world that because of conditions of the soils, they don't have phylloxera and they still have non-grafted vines that are 50 to 100 years old. And yeah, that's how everything started. Yeah. And is there a difference in the taste of the wine? From what I understand, basically the root ball is the American one and it's grafted with a variety of grapes. The taste itself, the characteristics of that variety don't change. It has happened is that now because we have different rootstocks now that we have been able to produce, they can allow that grape to produce more or to be more adapted to drought, to be more uh, adapted to salinity in the soils or to other certain plagues and pests and produce better quality or less quality. It's very interesting now you know, the mix of quality that we can produce just because we can use different rootstocks and adapt them to the different soils and terroirs. From the grapes, let's go to winemaking, the winemaking practices in Europe. Is it similar in the US, the oak barrels and the different barrels? How is it? We use uh, very similar winemaking techniques. I mean, originally, all the winemaking back in the days, it started by using vessels that were made with concrete or clay or different other materials 
We passed to stainless steel in the past decades and it got popular just because it's cleaner and produce wines that are cleaner style, microbiologically more stable. But yeah, we age in barrels that is universal, <laughs> that wine making technique. We can use different percentages of new oak versus used oak if we want to give the wine characteristics that are more coming from new oak. But it's very similar, nothing has changed. Actually, it's very interesting now how winemakers we are trying to use techniques that were used or winemaking techniques that were used previously and I think one of also a very interesting trend is that we are being less interventionist. We are trying to not fully natural and, and that is, a, is an interesting movement that is very hard to, to define what is natural wine and what is not natural wine. And, but we are trying to be more gentle with the approach of making wine, being less extractive, less alcoholic wine. On the same trip, we went to quite a few wineries and uh, we went to a gentleman's vineyard where he was making natural wines. It was completely natural. He said every batch is not predictable, right? Because there's no intervention. There's no yeast put in there to start any of the microbial activities. So he did it at a very small scale, mm -hmm. but it probably is difficult in our market where with the picky customer who's used to this taste of the Chardonnay or the Malbec or you know whatever you want to have that particular taste to compromise based on how nature decided to make it. There's always some, some level of variability between batches or lots of wine that we ferment, even if we use commercial yeast or we don't use commercial yeast or we use sulfur or not. But it's true that it requires certain skills to produce natural wines. One of the key ones is to be, your winery needs to be very well sanitized. Uh, that is key. And that, you know, the microbiological changes that can happen if you don't keep it very clean or sanitize is what make the differences. But it's true that the consumers also are expecting certain characteristics of a wine. And that is, is normal. I mean, we, we expect it also from food. We just want it to taste clean, be pure in the aromas and flavors that we taste. So yeah, that is hard to translate it when, or to, or making it a larger scale. But there's still things that we can do to not to manipulate too much the wine and just to express which its vintage is bringing us. So yeah, I mean, here at Ellers Estate, we, I don't inoculate with commercial yeast. I do it for certain wines only, but it depends on the vintage. In general, I try not to. I'm very gentle with the use of sulfur, which, you know, sulfites are created naturally during fermentation. So I just use levels that I can I feel comfortable just because I'm very sure that all the practices in the cellar with sanitizations are the proper ones. So, and I don't find or filter the wine. So there's a few things that I can do, even if I produce larger volumes of wine that are still, could be considered like natural or less interventionist. You interned under Jose Pascual Garcia, who is an expert winemaker. When was that? Oof, that was a long time ago. <laughs> it was like around 2003, 2004. He was a great winemaker and he's a great winemaker. He was a chemist. His education was in chemistry. And he taught me a lot about the chemistry of the wines. It was amazing to have that experience with him. And did that start your journey? What was your educational background for you to intern with Dr. Garcia? All my background is in science. I studied biology and food and science technologies. I was very interested since 
very young in food and anything that it was related with fermentation and how to produce food and on a larger scale and uh, beverages. And wine was one of my interests since, since I was very little. There was always wine at the table at home and I just enjoy a glass of wine since I was very young. But it wasn't until I started working with him that the interest sparked into something bigger and, and made me realize that I wanted to go back to the university and study enology and viticulture. Every teacher, especially the good ones who, or the impactful ones, leave you with one strong takeaway. What did you take away from him, which maybe helped your career? He always said, don't take shortcuts, just dedicate, and especially in the lab. I work with him mostly in the lab and tasting. And he always said to me, don't take shortcuts. You always have to put, to give all that you have and to do it right. Don't just like be quick, take your time on taking decisions, take your time in a specific technique, take your time when you are doing an analysis in a lab, no shortcuts. And it's true that uh, with winemaking, with farming, there are no shortcuts. Everything takes a lot of time. Making wine takes, at least for white wine, six months to one year. A good red wine takes two or two, three years if you are it in barrels, so you cannot take shortcuts. Pepe Garcia was in Zaragoza, Spain, and from Zaragoza, you came to beautiful Napa Valley. Zaragoza also is a very, very pretty city in northeastern Spain, yeah. Northeast, correct, uh, between Madrid and Barcelona, and it's a very extreme weather area. It's uh, very cold, the winters, very warm, basically very hot, the summers. It's very interesting. I think, you know, I'm, I'm that kind of person that I like change. I like to take challenges, and I was never afraid of traveling or, you know, always by myself. And with him, I work for a, another year more in, in La Manchuela, which is south, close to Valencia, between Valencia and Madrid. When I go back to the university, one of my, the professor of viticulture, uh, Jose Ramon Lizarrague, he actually was very inspirational for me. And he used to talk a lot about California in his classes and the farming and viticultural practices. I was very curious about California back then. He introduced me to a company I worked with for almost three years before I started deciding to keep traveling around the world and learn English, because back then I couldn't speak a word of English. And I realized very quickly that wine is a global business and I needed to be able to communicate what I was doing. And I, yeah, from there, I traveled to New Zealand just because I was very interested on learning about Sauvignon Blanc back in the day. And from New Zealand, I ended up in Napa because the winemaker I worked with in New Zealand, she was a Chilean winemaker, beautiful person. She introduced me to the winery or the winemaker I was going to work for almost 11 years in California, in Napa. Now, Elhurst Estate is over 130 years. So what is the history of this estate? It's unbelievable. I, obviously, your audience cannot see the building behind me where I'm lying on my offices, but it's one of the original wineries that it was built back in the late 1800s. It was actually built in 1886 by Bernard Ellers. He was an immigrant, a German immigrant that came back in those days during the gold rush to make a living here in, in California. And he bought a vineyard. This is how it started. Obviously, this winery has gone through different hands and it has a lot of history. It's beautiful, you know, to understand how it went through different hands and all the different winemakers that actually made wine in this building. If the walls could speak, it would be very interesting, the stories that they could tell. After a few different ownerships, it was bought in 1996 
by Jan and Sylvain Leduc, which were a French couple that have businesses all over the world and, and they love wine as a good French couple and, and they wanted to make good wine here in Napa. So they are the present owners of the estate. Yes. I mean, they are currently not with us. I mean, they passed away in 2003 and 2013. They left a legacy. We're part of a charitable trust, which one of the organizations of this charitable trust is the Leduc Foundation, which basically what they do is fund programs for cardiovascular and neurovascular research. We're just part of, of that trust. So all the profits that you make from the estate goes to the trust? We are set as a business, so we still have to, you know, be sustainable, economically sustainable. That's how I would like to describe it. But yeah, we support them and they support us when we need it. The past years has been very exciting. So I've been here since 2018. All the efforts, all my work basically is focused on being sure that these vineyards that were planted in 1997, they stayed around for at least 30 more years. And we are doing a lot of changes in the winery just to make it sustainably, economically sustainable and that we can actually produce better wines with respect for the land. There's a lot of talk about the land being part of the solution for global warming because the land can absorb the carbon and sequester it. Yeah, so this is super important for us. And just back in the days, even before I joined Ehlers, we have been practicing organic farming. We are actually certified organic since 2008, which means that we've been practicing organic since 2005. For certification purposes, you need to at least be an organic for three years prior. And um, for me, soil is very important. My focus is basically being sure that all the practices in the vineyard to minimize carbon footprint we do many different things, like we use cover crops, which hopefully will help to absorb carbon produced. But we also want to be sure that the limited water capacity that we have here, we can like maintain it and sustain it by having healthy soils that can retain that water and they don't need a lot of irrigation. So there are some innovations in irrigation too, right? Earlier, they would have sprinklers sprinkle everywhere and now they have it directed to the roots. Yeah, so we have a very conscious irrigation program here. We use different tools that allow us to measure evapotranspiration in a plant, for example. We use Thule. We have a humidity sensors in the soil just to be sure that when we apply water, we are actually applying where it's needed or if it's needed. Sometimes just because it's hot and we have a week that is gone, the temperatures are going to get higher doesn't mean that we need to apply water if the vines don't need it. So we try to use all that is in our power and we have plenty tools to understand what is happening in the plant and in the soils. But we also try to apply irrigation very consciously. So all the vineyards or the other blocks, we have double poly, which is a system where we have a double lines of irrigation and we only apply irrigation to the plants that need it, to the younger plants or areas that are weaker for whatever reason. Sometimes soils are rockier in some parts of a block and deeper in other sites, so they don't need as much water. So we're just trying to be conscious about what we are doing. I think that's for me kind of like translation of definition of being sustainable is actually being aware of what we are doing it and not just doing things just because we think that we need to do it. So there's a movement from organic to regenerative farming. And part of what you have talked about, the cover crops, the biochar use potentially, are parts of the regenerative farming. In the wine industry, 
and also of course water conservation right yeah but uh, regenerative is also about the people it's about being sure that for example one of the things that is very important for us is to limit the use of sulfur spraying in in the vine in the vineyards because certain products that we're using for spraying as fungicides uh, or insecticides are not good for the health of our workers. Another example is we are doing some replanting and we are elevating the height of the vine. We noticed that our vines were very low and a lot of our vineyard workers have a lot of issues in their knees and in their backs. It's like how you can prevent that. When we talk about regenerative, it's about thinking of all, it's all the chain of production and not only just farming, production and sales and how we manage every single aspect of the business, not just farming. So do you use pesticides? We use fungicides, but they are organic fungicides that are very, very gentle with the environment. The reason I asked is I've noticed in some of the vineyards at the end of each row, they have a rose bush. Yeah, that was a very common practice. I think it was initiated in Europe, but now it's used because uh, roses or other plants, not just roses, that can, can sow diseases earlier on before the vine can actually sow it. And also they attract beneficials. One of the things we're doing is planting different plants that produce flowers that attract beneficials. And we have all our vineyards surrounded by these hedgerows. Define beneficials. Insects that are beneficial that can displace non-beneficial insects, basically, from lace winds, wasp, anything that can displace other insects that are not, like leafhoppers of sarsuders, are not good for the vines because they are vectors for certain diseases. So having other insects that are going to eat the larvae or the eggs of those non-beneficials is very helpful. So creating an ecosystem around a vineyard that is beneficial for the vines can also limit the use of insecticides that we don't want to use. So you said this wine was established in 1897. Uh, Was that before or after the great French wine blight, the plague? Yeah, this was after. You said people are an important component of regenerative farming and your philosophy at Ehlers Farm. And you talked about your laborers. And what percent of your laborers are migrant workers? Right now, we're not talking just about cellar or vineyards, even here at the winery offices. And I will say that we are 80% (laughs) immigrants. I actually, uh, in our tasting room, our host, I will say that all of them are from a Mexican origin. We speak more Spanish at the winery than English. (laughs) They're minority right now. I mean, it just happened organically, not, not intentionally, but that's the reality. I read an article recently about how U.S., population is going to be 50% non-white in 2050. So we are a mix of different cultures and it's good. I think it's beneficial. I'm assuming that you pay them a living wage. Yeah, totally fair. (laughs) They wouldn't work with us if it was not the case. But yes, we are definitely fair. And that is actually something that is not just I think in Napa in general, the wine industry is putting a lot of emphasis on on being sure that our workers have a good quality of living because it's what is sustaining actually the, the industry. We, we wouldn't be able to do anything without them. The wine is not made on its own. Farming is a really, really, really difficult work. So we try to be sure that, that they are happy and that they enjoy their work. What is the business model? So you have Elhurst Estate Wine or you do private label? 
No, we don't do private labels. It's all all the wine that we bottle is Ehlers Estate. We make nine different wines. Well, most of it, I in the past years, I buy some of the fruit to make uh, more wine just because I'm doing some replant in the state. It's all under Ehlers. Most of the wines that we make is Cabernet Sauvignon, obviously. Cabernet Sauvignon is the king in the Valley. But we also make Cabernet Franc, which is kind of like the cool kid. Everybody likes Cabernet Franc lately and Merlot red blend, Sauvignon Blanc that I really love, Petit Verdot. Whenever I pick a wine, bottle of wine, I try to pick not a blend. So is a blend in some ways inferior or is it gives you more flavor? Not at all. I, I think blends are actually, as winemakers, we can actually express our art of blending. We can create wines that are more complex, that have a little bit of those characteristics that each single variety in, in that wine are going to give to the wine. I enjoy a lot making blends and um, actually the consumer is liking it more and more. Obviously, it's always very special to have a wine that is just a mono variety, just because it makes that wine express a lot what is coming from the soil. And blends are more like expression of the art of, of the winemaker. That's how I would describe it. And art is in the eye of the beholder. So what you may like, maybe, maybe not the other person may not like. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So if you had to give a dollar amount or in any metric of the impact of your practices in your microcosm of winemaking, what would you say it is? I just would like to take from nature what I'm giving it back. Like, or basically, I want to give back the same that I'm taking from nature. I would like to have a neutral relationship with nature or with the energy that I use to produce wine. And I think that is kind of like the goal, I think, to be sustainable, to not to be sure that we are creating too much carbon or that, you know, the residues that we put or back in the soil because of the water or the chemicals that we use, at least we want to contribute by planting more hedgerows or to be sure that we are doing cover crop. Or one of the things that I haven't mentioned, for example, is that we are going to start recycling all the water that we use just for winemaking because we are going to start using a, a system that uses worms to digest that water, and so we'll be able to use it for irrigation to the vineyards. To me, that is super important. All the water that I'm going to use to produce wine is going to go back clean to the vineyards to produce more grapes and to produce more wine. So for me, that is what I think is important as a number or as a thought. We need to be neutral in what we take from the land and what we give back. Thank you so much, Laura, for coming on Mindful Businesses. It was a pleasure to have you on our show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Mindful Businesses, produced and hosted by Vidya Ayer. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email to info at mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. If you learned a thing or two from this episode, share it with one friend. Click on the subscribe button to be the first to learn about our latest episodes. We recorded this podcast in Buffalo, New York. Theme music was composed by Tatum Gale. Roxanne Korean is our marketing assistant. Ketan Karat is our podcast editor. Our advisors are Jim Stone and Anupama Pashricha. This is Vedya Ayer with Mindful Businesses.